Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. My guest today is a professor of chemistry at the University of Copenhagen. He is also the holder of eight patents in pollution control and the co-founder of two startup companies, Infuser and Air Labs. Welcome, Dr. Matthew Johnson. Thank you very much, Sarah. Very happy to be here today. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. You know, what we're talking about today is so important. You can't go one day without hearing about climate change and how the, the planet's warming and how we're actually ready for doom and gloom. But we know that there's a long history and it's just not something that happened overnight. What I'd love for our, our listeners, our team of explorers, is to get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up and how did you get interested in science and technology? Yeah, that's that's a wonderful question. Uh, I come from a small town in Minnesota, in southern Minnesota. Um, my father was a Presbyterian minister there, and I guess I grew up influenced by him and by my older siblings. And I'm the I'm the youngest of five uh, children. And I, you know, why is a person the way that they are? I, I don't know how to, <laughs> how to answer question. that. Uh, but, but I think I, I was definitely inspired by what my brothers and sisters were doing. And my oldest brother was studying mathematics and he played chess and he watched Star Trek. And I, I just started from a very early age uh, being interested in science. Did you know that you were going to evolve to becoming a leader a real voice in regard to pollution and the climate and the environment were you always connected to the environment i think so uh you know we we were always going out camping and i mm, you know course, if, if i can <laughs> my, my favorite <laughs> answer to this uh would be to tell a story of going camping in the summers and we, we would go into northern minnesota and at that time you know, if you drew a line from that place to the North Pole, mm-hmm. it would cross one road. Oh, my goodness. And and I think people don't realize, you know, the it was a real wilderness. And we need that connection to, to the planet Earth. And, you know, there were moose and bears and beaver and eagles and, and all of these things. But that's, I don't know if it gives you a fundamental connection that I, mm-hmm. I've just always carried with me. You know, I grew up in Colorado, so for us, our mountains were the backdrop. We would go, as you, you know, you yeah, mentioned camping, yeah. but we would hike and, and explore and fish. And, you know, I've seen as I've gone back to Colorado and I've gone to other beautiful areas around the country, yeah. um, I can see the changes. Yeah. And it's so yeah. concerning. When did you yeah. first become aware that we were impacting our planet? I, <laughs> I guess my... <laughs> My brother, my other brother, <laughs> he gave me some books and I, I was probably five or six years old. And, and one of these was a story about Tommy Trout. <laughs> Tommy and, Trout. That's yeah, a good name. <laughs> and he, he, was, uh, he was swimming in his lake and then he, he swam up a river and, you know, it, it bothered his gills and his eyes were irritated. And uh, mm. then there was this awful pipe discharging pollution into the stream and mm. I, it just really resonated with me and and so maybe yeah. from the very beginning you you had uh 
Rachel Carson and uh, this environmental awareness. It, it just seemed to be part of the environment when I was growing up. Yeah, Rachel Carson. I, her, she has a park named after her not far from where I live out here in Washington, D.C. Her book was really groundbreaking. Did that have a huge influence on you? I, I think so. Uh, I, you know, and, and I think as you grow up, you you start to learn a lot more. And so she was a hero. Um, I think we lost, you know, a huge presence, at, at least from, from my perspective. And, and this was uh, James Lovelock, who recently passed away. He was 103 years old. Wow, and life. he worked with NASA in the 1960s to identify... Mm -hmm. Uh, if there was life on another planet, what would you look for? Mm -hmm. He also developed a sensor that was able to see CFC compounds in the atmosphere. What are then, CFC? So th these are the chlorofluorocarbons that mm -hmm. were behind uh, the ozone hole and ozone depletion. So it was his so discovery that allowed us to know that they were building up in the atmosphere was going back a long, long time ago. I had an opportunity to go down to Antarctica and to some of the different research stations. And I remember, I think it was the Vladivostok. It was the Russian research mm -hmm. station. They were studying the ozone. And they said something to the fact that the opening and closing of the ozone was actually cyclic. That, And I was trying to put that in place with what we're doing, like you've mentioned CFCs. Are we accelerating that now? Right. Um I, I think it's a wonderful case study uh, to think about ozone depletion. And you can learn a lot of geophysics. And I, I got a Fulbright in order to, to study some of the chemistry related to ozone depletion. Now, it's, it's cyclic in the sense that it's seasonal. And so it always starts in the, in the Antarctic springtime when the sun comes out. And that's mm -hmm. because there's some photochemistry occurring in the atmosphere that destroys all of the ozone. And then by the end of the season, you know, atmospheric circulation changes and the, and the ozone hole heals. But it's caused by anthropogenic emissions and these CFC compounds that are released into the atmosphere. So I'm going to backtrack just in case some folks are not familiar with these terms. Can you define for us what is ozone? Ozone. And, <laughs> sure. <laughs> the basic. Yeah. No, very good question. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I know you're involved with the Planetary Society. Is, isn't that mm -hmm. right? Yes. And so what, one of the very fundamental things in the atmosphere is what are the molecules that absorb sunlight? Mm -hmm. And in our atmosphere, the, the first one, the number one molecule is definitely atmospheric oxygen. And of course, we breathe oxygen. It's produced by plants. But one of the things that happens when it absorbs sunlight is that it, it breaks apart and you get, you know, O2 oxygen mm -hmm. goes into oxygen atoms. And they don't live for very long. What they do is they, they combine with oxygen molecules and then that forms ozone. So this is O3 ozone. And, okay. you know, in the Midwest, you, you could smell the ozone before there was a thunderstorm. And so the, that the is lightning, the smell. yeah, yeah, this very mm -hmm. fresh, very mm -hmm. fresh smell. Yeah. Um, so some, some people remember it for, from that. Uh, 
But sure. the nice thing with ozone is that it's even better at absorbing sunlight than the oxygen is. And so it's, it's really filtering out all of the dangerous light uh, that would come from the sun and give us sunburn and skin cancer and, and mm -hmm. all of these things. And that occurs in the stratosphere. So, you know, very high in the atmosphere. And we like that ozone. That's the, that's the good ozone. That's where most of the ozone is. Now, ozone has a second role, and that's, that's in the troposphere. And there, it's not so good because we, we shouldn't breathe it directly. So it harms people and mm -hmm. uh, cause, causes, you know, death and hypertension and, and things like that. But it's also a, a climate gas. And so part of the greenhouse warming is due to additional ozone. So it's, it's part of smog. It's a component of smog. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, growing up in Colorado, we used to have these brown inversion clouds over the mountains. I mean, literally yeah. it was brown. And then as they started to put in new policies to regulate what we could put out into the atmosphere, so to speak, from our cars and other, yeah. other emissions, it started to dissipate. Do you think um, certain parts of the world are more susceptible than others? Let's say China, or India. I remember in China, I couldn't yeah. look across the street and people were wearing masks no, even yeah, before yeah. COVID because they just couldn't breathe. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you, you introduce the idea of climate change and you're, mm -hmm. you're asking if, if things are accelerating. Right. And uh, it, it depends very much on, uh, you know, where you are and what you experience. And so, you know, atmospheric pollution is linked with climate, it's linked with air pollution, it's linked with quality of life. And the, these things are getting worse on the planet today. You could think that population has exploded, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, we're much better at producing food, mm -hmm. we have better medical care, and everybody needs some kind of resources. And uh, there's kind of some megatrends that are contributing to this. One of these is urbanization. And so we've passed a point where over half of everybody lives in a city today. So we have more people and more people living in cities. And together, this means that a lot of people are breathing air that's much worse than it used to be. So air pollution is, is much more of a problem than it used to be. This is made worse by climate change because it's it's hot and it's dry and it's dusty and air pollution and all of these things add add to the the stress of urban life today. You know, when you mentioned urban life, I remember flying into India several years ago. It was one of their coldest yep. winters. And as soon as I got off the plane, I knew something was wrong. And what was happening is they had burned all their trees already, and now they were burning their tires. And literally, if you blew your nose, a black gunk would come out. We just, you couldn't yeah. breathe. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been to China. I've been to India. There's agricultural fires. I, you know, there's, it's not sustainable, <laughs> simply. It, it and, could be. And w one of the points that I wanted to make is that there's Maslow's triangle of, of your needs in life. And at the base of this are very fundamental things. You know, you need, you need food and you need shelter. And then you, you get to the higher levels 
and people start thinking of a, of a larger perspective. And maybe, maybe you'd like to have personal health mm-hmm. or maybe you'd like to have friends or, or culture. And then they found that there's a, some critical threshold in your annual income when people start to think about the environment and environmental quality. Mm-hmm. And they, they simply can afford to think about the, the world in which they live. And I forget the exact number, but I, I believe it was around uh, $10,000 per year in income. Mm-hmm. And so China is passing that point and India is passing that point. And there's definitely a lot more environmental awareness and a much larger will to do something to improve the environment than there was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. So we're, we're starting to see you know, a lot more awareness, but, but also a lot more changes to improve the environment. So you speak of health, and there's a statement from the World Health Organization that said that pollution is now the world's largest single environmental health risk. Pretty extraordinary. What's it going to take for not only countries such as India and China, but for really the global population to understand this? I know we had the Paris Accords. So many nations signed it. It became a political statement. What's it really going to take so that we really have that all hands on deck and do what we need to do? One of the things that we're doing at Air Labs is to try to build awareness about air quality. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that it's easy not to think about the atmosphere. And it's easy sure. not to be aware of, of what you just said, which, which is that it's the, the largest environmental killer uh, that we have today. So air pollution kills more people every year than have been killed by the COVID pandemic. That's extraordinary. It, it's extraordinary. And, and now that people aren't smoking, the leading mm-hmm. cause of lung cancer is air pollution. And people don't know about this. And no, you know, part of, part of it is you don't see it directly. You might see it in the mountains at a distance, as, as mm-hmm. you were saying, but you, you don't right. see it in front of you. But we're working with low-cost sensors in order to make the invisible visible. And then th- this is something that you, you know, we, we just installed 225 of these in London. And we see incredible detail in the air pollution in the city. And it could be traffic or restaurants mm-hmm. or ju- just the, the things that people do every day. And we find that uh, 40% of the air pollution that you have in this borough is produced within the borough. And so the activities you do, that, that affects the air that you breathe. And that's, that's true everywhere. Uh, so one of the changes that we've seen, you know, you, you used to think that you, you would go to China and mm-hmm. there were scooters everywhere. Right. And bicycles. And, and bicycles. Yeah. And then these two stroke engines gave out a lot of air pollution. And in, in the United States today, uh, just just a little moped engine would give out more air pollution than uh, ten or twenty cars. Did not know that. They, you know, it's a unfiltered sure, engine, and you exhaust. don't have the catalyst, and and they yeah. and they really stink. And yeah. one of the things they've done in China is to electrify all of these little scooters. 
And it's it, it's kind of fun because they're they're silent, you know. <laughs> you don't mm-hmm. hear them coming, and then right. zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a bit dangerous, but definitely a positive step in terms of uh, improving air quality. So we just passed a major piece of legislation in the United States, and, and one yep. of the caveats is having increased expansion to more electric modes of transportation. Do you think that's a game changer? I, I, I think it is, definitely. Um, and you, you can't escape the, the air pollution that you get from, from vehicles and transportation and uh, diesel and gasoline-powered. That's, that's true. Uh, it won't change the air pollution that you get from, from brakes and tires and, and road dust and, and these things. But, so how uh, does it balance out then? Definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, you, you know that some years ago, Europe made a, a strategic decision to kind of favor diesel engines. And th- this is something that, that uh, the United States, you know, most cars run on gasoline. But one consequence is that you, you do have more nitrogen dioxide air pollution in European cities than, than you have in the United States. And I, hmm. I really notice this I when I go to London, for example, that you, mm-hmm. you get rough in your throat and your, and your eyes mm-hmm. are itching. Yeah. Um, and so that I really look forward to this, that uh, you know, they, they have a goal of electrifying all of the vehicles in London. All of the taxis will be, uh, will be battery driven. And I, I think it's really going to have a positive impact on air quality. Certainly. So from a, a pragmatic approach, if you have it electric, yep. then you have to have charging stations every so many kilometers. And how, how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's not really different from uh, filling your car with gasoline. That's true. That's but true. Is, isn't that very simple? I, I see those everywhere over here. I, I'm working in, in Copenhagen Europe. every day. I, I live in Sweden. Mm-hmm. I visit London. You, mm-hmm. you see charging stations, isn't it? Yeah, I, I only see them in our parks here. <laughs> I don't see them very often. So, okay, okay. And, and then I noticed a few neighbors have a few electric cars and they've got these, you know, concoctions trying to connect their cars to some piece of electricity connected to their house. So yeah, we, we definitely yeah. need to do better. But I think it's exciting. I, I think, I think we'll start. get there. I think we'll get there. The, the performance of these vehicles is, is wonderful as a, as a driver. And when you talked about your your company and having these wonderful sensors, I think you mentioned it was in England and London. What are they going to do with it? They're going to have the data, but how are they going to change their programs and policies? Right. So the, there's a definitely an education mission at the same time because you you do need to do something with the data. I would like to see this data act as a catalyst for change. And you know, it's it's like FDR said. Uh, the voters have to do it, right? And, and if the people lead, then the politicians will, will follow. And I think that you can build the momentum that you need to create changes in policy if people are on board and if they're aware of the issues. So by providing this data, and we're, we're providing it all for free, you, you can go on the internet and, and look up these maps and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we think that we're creating the momentum for change there. Maybe it comes from schools or from churches or, or we're working with schools and churches and hospitals and different mm-hmm. citizens organizations, but it's a problem for everybody, right? I mean, yeah. it's a, as a citizen on this planet, the, this is part of our environment. So getting our community 
activists and leaders on board, but let's talk about our political leadership. It's yep. it's extraordinary. Again, I use that word a lot because when I think about this, how people can deny it, what's the reason behind it and what can we do to move beyond that? Yeah, wonderful question. I think about <laughs> it quite a question. bit. And, and you know, I've, I've been teaching uh, climate change for 25 years now and re really keeping track. And so it's not that long ago, you know, as a as an old person, I, I can say this now, but Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan said we should do something about climate change. And, you know, Bush the first and Bush the second were, were also saying climate change is something that we need to act on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, very recently, there has definitely been a change in public opinion linked to a very aggressive marketing campaign uh, by interests in the status quo. I, I think that's the, the easiest way to say that's it. Probably a good way to say it, yeah. And, you know, there, there are huge financial interests in uh, not changing our fuel mixture from what we have today. So is it the, the energy companies that are pushing back? I mean, why has it even been politicized? Oh, I, I think clearly <laughs> <laughs> everybody has a right to their, to their point of view. But I, I heard a philosopher talking about this and... You know, they made the example that you could see a glacier that would seem to move against the wind, right? So if the, if the wind mm -hmm. was going to the south, the glacier would be going to the north. Mm -hmm. And how can that be? Well, of, of course, most of the glacier is underwater and maybe the water current is moving opposite of the wind. Mm -hmm. So what he was saying is that maybe a generation ago, some choices were made about energy infrastructure. You know, maybe we decided to build a power plant, for, for example. A lot of money was paid in order to build that power plant, but then that somebody needs a return on that investment. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, the, the reality that we have today is a consequence of decisions that were made you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, something like mm. that. There's a lot of inertia okay. in the system. Mm -hmm. And so even if the political wind or pop popular opinion is moving north, <laughs> maybe right. the infrastructure is, is moving south. And, and so there is a significant lag in the system. And that, that's really what we're fighting against today is uh, just kind of updating and getting everybody on board. But there are, there are signs of hope. And one of the things that, that makes me very happy is simply the, the drop in the price of solar power. Mm -hmm. And you look at how cheap it's become, and, and it's now often the cheapest option for, for new generation of, of electricity. Uh, and I saw an example, I, I think it was in The Economist, where they looked at, uh, you know, it was a region of Afghanistan that was growing poppies, like opium poppies. And, right, and so giant fields. And, and these farmers needed to irrigate their fields, and so they were running mm -hmm. pumps. Mm -hmm. And they would use diesel for that. Mm. And now the satellite photos, they show that they've all gone over to solar. That's fantastic. Right? They don't do that because of the environment. It's simply mm -hmm. cost. It's easier to have Cheaper. solar panels 
than to than to bring in the fuel. And I, I think we're seeing examples like this again and again, where purely on financial basis, people are doing the right thing for the environment. So I'm starting to see a couple of my neighbors installing solar panels on their roofs. Hmm? How efficient is it? And then the, there was a question of what's your, you mentioned the return on your investment. When do you really start to get the benefit, one, financially, and two, how much does it really contribute to decreasing the pollutants? Yeah, excellent question. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just a simple chemist. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> There's nothing simple not, about that. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not an expert in, uh, in energy policy, but I'll, I'll tell you the way that I see it. And uh, I saw a statistic recently that it takes a lot of electricity to generate gasoline. Because you, you have to pump it and you have to transport it and you have to refine it. And people are often saying with uh, electric vehicles, well, where does the electricity come from? Well, it takes just as much electricity to make the gasoline as it does for an electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. But in addition, you're using that gasoline. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that people are not aware of the level of uh, infrastructure and subsidy that are being used for fossil fuel resources right now. And if we were to apply that same system, and, and it's all kind of invisible, you know, we, we don't, we don't yeah, see we it. Don't see it. Mm -hmm. um, if that was applied to, to renewable energy, we, we could have the energy revolution tomorrow. I, I'm convinced of it. What do you think about wind? What do I think about wind? Uh, you know, I live in Scandinavia today. Sweden is generating all of its electricity from, uh, from wind and water energy. Norway does the same. Norway is, is exporting renewable energy. So they actually have a, a negative carbon emissions uh, for, for their electricity. So mm -hmm. it, it works. It's, it's great. I, I think there are some minor questions about, is your network built to to redistribute the energy and are you able to store it? And uh, th there's some great options for storing energy. So I, I think if you want to see these solutions, they're, they're right in front of us. It, it doesn't take a great deal of innovation from, from where we are already today. So why was Scandinavia up in the center of all this and really be taking a proactive approach? Was it due to political leadership? Was it due to their activism from their community? Is it because they're so close to the pole, North Pole, and they can see what we're doing and they'll be underwater yeah. if we keep it's, doing what we're doing? I mean, what, what is the incentive? It's, it's those long, dark winters, you know. <laughs> it's those long, dark ones, yes. It will become very wet. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but why? And... That, you know, also one of those questions that, that's very hard to answer. I, I think that uh, Norway was definitely um, ahead of the curve w when they discovered the North Sea oil. They decided to create a public fund with all of that profit that they were getting. And the, then they've invested this. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I, what I heard is that 1% of all of the stock in the world is now owned by this public Norwegian fund that's being used okay. for, for the betterment of the country and, and the future and so on. Uh, and so, you know, the, 
the prime minister of Norway said that uh, decarbonizing energy supplies and carbon capture and storage was going to be Norway's putting a man on the moon project. And so they've they've really been investing heavily in these things. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, you know, you you could call them, you know, visionary or or something in doing that, or Mm -hmm. or you could say they're they're simply lucky. Uh, But I think also they were very early at uh, developing water power. And and that that's simply due to geography that they sure, you know they have sure. mountains and rain and and, right. and it was easy to generate electricity from it, or you could look at Denmark, which uh, you know doesn't have a lot of uh, coal or oil or or anything like this natural gas, and so they they've had to be smart about uh, where they get their energy. So you know maybe they had the resources and people who were able to to think rationally about the future. So I'm sure you're tracking what's happening here in the United States. Now, it used to be that the fires in California happened generally around Ooh. September, October when it became yeah. a little drier and they had the winds bringing across all of the mountains and forests. Now it's all year round. And then you yeah. go into Lake Mead and, and you see the Colorado River and we call yeah. them, I believe, ghost forests, dead trees that are at the bottom yeah. of the river are now popping up. We're, we're finding a lot of dead bodies as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is this something due to climate change or is this just, again, that natural cycle of the planet and we're, we're aware and we're experiencing it? Right. Uh, it's due to climate change. I've, I lived in Pasadena for five years. And uh, so I've, I've experienced those fires myself, right? I remember the, yeah, they're, the they're looking out the dramatic. window. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it looks like I thought it was snowing. I'm, I'm from Minnesota, yeah. but it was oh, ash. ash from the fires coming down, right? Um, And so one of my pet peeves is the word drought because that that implies that it's, you know, episodic and that there's some normal baseline that that you're going to Mm -hmm. return to. And, you know, we know from looking at the planet's history that there are different... Uh, climate states in the system, in the earth system, and that you can very rapidly change from one climate state to another. And then, you know, I'm, I'm at the University of Copenhagen. Denmark uh, is associated with Greenland. Mm-hmm. And then they're analyzing all of those Greenland ice cores here at the University of Copenhagen. And they, they've got I don't know, 15 miles of ice core underneath wow. the department sitting in the basement in a, in a freezer. It's remarkable. And, and so I talk with these guys and, and they're just like, you know, the, the last ice age ended in a couple of decades. That was it. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the planet changed state. And when you, when you start to learn about uh, how atmospheric circulation works, it's easy to understand how the climate areas are going to shift with climate change. And so if you look at where the deserts are on the planet, mm-hmm. they're always just a little bit north or a little bit south of the equator. Mm-hmm. And, and that just has to do with the, the circulation of air uh, mm-hmm. at the equator. It goes up and you have monsoons. And then that air descends 
And then with climate change, uh, you know, the, we're going to have things like desertification. And so Australia has seen these effects and the American South sees these effects right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's other examples you can draw that uh, were predicted, were predicted decades ago, and now, now we're seeing it. And so I, so I think tragic. We predicted it's, it's it. Tragic. Yeah. 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 It's remarkable. I know. <laughs> it's I just mind boggling when you think about yeah. it. And what is it going to finally take for people to say, stop, we need to change yeah. it. So yeah. speaking of that and, and trying to merge more towards a sense of hope and that we're not going to end up looking like Mars. Um, yeah. What, what, how long would it take for us, humanity, to actually heal the planet, to do what we need to do so that we can go back into our natural cycles and not doing what we're doing now, destroying our planet? Yeah. Uh, I heard a really nice talk by, um, this was a climatologist from the University of East Anglia. And she said, you know, don't look to me for the answer because, you know, would you really trust an engineer? And <laughs> would you really trust me? And I don't even trust myself to, you know, That's not forget point. my keys and, and stuff like this. Right. And, and I think we're all in this together, right? I mean, it's all of humanity that has to do something about this. And Certainly, you know, if if it was within my power to do something, of course, I'd love to do, I, I would do it tomorrow to push the magic button and deliver this solution. And I, I think we actually know what to do. We have the answers in front of us. And so part of the problem is a very human problem is how do we get people on board in order to do something? And I, I think also... It's difficult because it's it's a continuum of problems. And for some people, climate change is here and now, and they are experiencing the environmental degradation. And so, for example, if uh, you're in sub-Saharan Africa, which used to be very fertile, and now mm-hmm. you're not getting the rainfall and you don't have mm-hmm. crops, and th- this is yeah. destabilizing the society... And then some people are living in refugee camps. If that's you, climate change is here and now, and it's a very immediate problem. And if you're a multimillionaire and you have your own yacht, and mm-hmm. some people are buying, you know, a off the grid bolt hole on New Zealand, because that, that's <laughs> supposed to be, you know, the climate survivalist paradise. <laughs> those people are never going to feel it, mm-hmm. right? They're yeah, never going to feel it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the rest of us, we're, we're just somewhere in between those two extremes. And I, I think what we're going to see is some mixture of uh, adaptation and prevention. And we're, we've already gone down this road. I don't think we can undo it, to, to be honest. We mm. can keep the worst effects from happening. We can prevent disaster. But we're never going to go back to my childhood in the wilderness, you know, in northern Minnesota, listening to the loons. That's, uh, of course, you can go there and still hear loons, but 
you don't have uh, caribou and moose like there used to be because of climate change, right? It's it's not the same place. The Colorado, you remember, is not yes. the same place today. It's true. So true. We won't go back. Well, it sounds like sorry to say, (laughs) yeah, it's (laughs) very sorry to say ending on a bit of a sobering note, but also a note of a call to action. I think if we look back at all our childhood, our our worlds that we came from and what we could experience, we want to have that for our future generations as well. So even if we don't feel the pain point right now, we have to think ahead because we do need to, we do right now need to keep this planet survivable so that we can uh, grow and thrive and hopefully our children's children have a place to live. Matt, thank you so much for spending time with us. I wish I had a couple more hours to, uh, to understand where we are and what we can do. And I just thank you for everything you're doing, especially to raise awareness. I think when people can measure something, they tend to respond to it. And hopefully your sensors will allow that. And I just want to thank you for joining us today. Really a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. And until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching. <laughs>